welcome to uh, the January edition of the LSBU Health and Social Care podcast. Uh, my name is uh, Warren Turner and I'm Dean and Pro-Vice-Chancellor of the Health and Social Care School here at LSBU and I'm joined today by my colleague... Uh, I'm Becky Malby, I'm the new Professor of Health Systems Innovation here at London South Bank. Absolutely delighted to be here, Warren. And welcome. Becky Thank has you. literally been in the university a matter of days, and it's really great that you're here, Becky. And thanks for being press-ganged into uh, co-hosting this, uh, this month's podcast. So just to let you know what's coming up, we've got an interview with Ian Mertens. He is um, the LSBU Chief Operating Officer, and he's going to talk to us about um, LSBU making the Stonewall Top 100 Employers list. How fantastic is that? Uh, And then the second interview coming up is John Feeney. He's the Chief Exec at the College of the Centre of Health. Oh, sorry, of Contemporary Health, sorry about that. And it's about their joint validating a course together on obesity care and management. Really, really important for our current health service needs and the care of our communities. And then Becky and I will be discussing those items in the news that have caught our eyes and ears this month. So, we start off today with an interview with uh, Chief Operating Officer of LSBU, Ian Mertens, about LSBU making the Stonewall Top 100 Employers List. I caught up with Ian earlier this week. So, Ian, um, congratulations on um, securing LSBU's place in the Stonewall Top 100 Employers. That must be a a really great feeling. Yeah, thank you. It's really exciting. Um, It was an ambition, I think, we started out with two couple of years ago that within five years we'd get to the top 100 um, and we've done it in three it's really fantastic uh, that's amazing so we're in the top 100 employers what, what what's it take to get into that top 100 employers list what it takes is um, ensuring that all your policies all your procedures all your activities are truly embedded across the organization so that um, you can demonstrate your inclusive on all the LGBT issues. Um, the In previous years, we've, we've entered for the last three years. Um, three years ago, we were 266. Last year, 172, I think. And this year, 92. And actually, the difference has been ensuring that things like our procurement procedures match with our own policies on LGBT issues. Well, typically, what are the most challenging areas that employers need to address in order to, to make it into uh, the top 100? I think it's ensuring that um, the organisation is mature enough and confident enough to challenge behaviours that could be seen as preventing people from just A, being themselves at work um, and performing better. There's a lot of evidence um, that's around that demonstrates organisations where people can be themselves perform better on the bottom line. What are the changes as, as well, has this made or, or, or will this make to LSBU as an employer? I would hope then we, we're confident that no matter who our suppliers are, we can ensure the same level of inclusivity and the same level of challenge within those companies so that for example we have an outsourced security contract we can ensure that those people are subject to the same policies and procedures that our own staff would be Mm -hmm. Um, and if we see behavior that we don't think is appropriate uh, we can challenge it and we know that we've got the support then of of their employers to drive that through Um, and I think it's it's 
important because as an organization like LSBU, we outsource a lot of our contracts, our catering, our security, our reception, and that's a lot of people. Um, and unless you have it truly embedded across the organization, it's very difficult to, to, to just persuade people that actually this is a good place to work. Mm. And I, and I guess that's the bottom line, isn't it? Really, it's a great place to work, irrespective of sexuality or you know yeah. religion, whatever. Yeah. Um, it's also quite a powerful message potentially for for students, for current yeah. or potential students too. Because I mean, it's an, it's an employer's um, list, isn't it? But but there's a number of other universities in there too, aren't there? There are. It is a, a workplace employers um, uh, index, an employers workplace index. Um, but what we do here differently to, I think, even some other universities is include our students within a lot of our policies. So um, we ensure that our student policies reflect our own mm -hmm. and that we can expect the same kind of activities. And our, our network here, our Sonnet network, um, we have students, so the chair of the student LGBT group is in that group. Mm -hmm. So we make sure that we've got a connection with the students. What are your, what are your next plans or aspirations well 92 is only just in the 100 so <laughs> whilst I'm happy that we've got there there's still a long way to go and I'd like to get nearer to the top um, there are some areas that we know we're weaker in and we need to just make sure that we've got that covered um, I think there are issues particularly around training um, we have uh, diversity and inclusion training I'm not sure it's fully embedded yet and whilst this index is all evidence-based. We had to provide the evidence as part of our self-assessment. Um, I think there are areas around mentoring that need picking up. Um, and there are still, I think, too many people, in my view, who are not confident to be out in the workplace. Um, and my ambition before I leave, I think, would be to ensure that there isn't anybody who doesn't want to be out at work. I mean, why why do you think that might be? Is it a lack of role model? I think we've got quite strong role models actually here at LSBU. Yeah, um, we have, um, and I I um, that's what I see as one of my roles is is to be a role model. I think there are still people who are not convinced that it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pity, and I'm I'm not sure that we'll ever get there truly. Um, some people are not out to their families. Uh, it's got to be a very much a personal decision. But what I think you can do through role, role models is just be be clear that actually you may not want to be out, but it doesn't prevent you from succeeding and getting to a senior position in the organisation. And we can do it with allies as well. And mm -hmm. Dave, the VC, is a very strong ally. How can our um, our colleagues, our staff, and our students uh, find out more about the Sonnet Network and the other networks? We have a network um, um, a section on the intranet, if you can find it on our wonderful gateway. We also have a social once a month. Uh, the last Thursday of a month, we all meet after work for a drink um, and just join in. Um, it's open to anybody. It's not a closed list. Um, I'd encourage anybody to go. It's fun. Right. Well, I shall see you at the next Sonnet Social, Ian. Good. Thank <laughs> Thanks you. very much. Thank you.
so that sounds absolutely fascinating, Warren. And I knew it was a great choice to come to work at London South Bank, and that completely confirms it for me. Actually, I really need to meet him. I haven't met Ian yet, but I, I really want to. Um, but it really resonates with a few things that we've been experiencing recently, and I think a sort of sense of what public sectors are for. So yeah. I think the public sector is there to hold society's values. It's one of its roles. It should absolutely model the sort of society we have. And I think that sounds like South Bank's really trying to do that here. It is. I think it's all part of our civic mission, too, is in the heart of London, affecting the local community. We're here for the local community. Um, And and our local community deserves to see the behaviours in South Bank that we would expect to see out in the community, too. Yeah, and if you don't have... If your public sector, whether it's the health service, the education service, schools, if that doesn't show people how we want to be as a society, then who else will? And I think we sometimes forget that. I always think mm. things like, you know, the council's starting to give people zero-hours contracts to care for our very most vulnerable people. I thought that was an absolute decimation yeah. of our public value mission, actually. It's yeah, really interesting yeah. to see that turn around and then yeah. realise that actually people don't want to work in that yeah. environment. It devalues people. And it's, it's awful to have to feel that you're dragging yourself into work and you're just yeah. having to push your way through the day every day against a yeah. tide of either lack of recognition or pressure or I know, I know personally friends of mine who work in organisations that would would never make the top 2,000 mm. <laughs> LGBT employers mm. who face prejudice and mm. bullying at work mm. because of... They, and actually, if they tried to be themselves at work, it would have a really negative impact mm. on them. So, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very proud to work in a place that values that diversity. Mm. And, and diversity is the answer. If you go to any complex world, and here we are in health and social care working in an environment where there is no one in charge, where it's multiple players, where Mm. citizens have views themselves about their own care, where actually the only way to get creative solutions and innovation is through diversity. And if we can't let everybody have a voice, we're never going to get embedded, sustained, fantastic solutions that meet people's needs. And uh, and or bring the best out in what, yeah. what's possible with our yeah. talent, with the talent yeah, yeah, that we definitely. have here. And I was fascinated in what Ian was saying about we're one of um, a, a small number, I think, of employers in that list who have involved students, you know, because actually yeah. it's easy just to yeah. focus on, I suppose easier to focus yeah. just on employees, yeah. but actually we've in, encompassed our student body yeah. in our um, approaches to policy making around um uh, LGBT issues and, and equality, um, which is great. And aren't there some parallels with the junior doctor strike here? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So you know, you look at um, here are our junior doctors. So I don't know about you, Warren, but I trained thirty odd years ago, and I now go and talk to our young doctors and their motivations, their experiences are very, very different. And if you've got a dominant ideology, which is basically tell people what to do, shout at them a lot, and require them to be apparently decent human beings without saying, you are decent human beings. What does it take? How do we act in service to your work with service users and carers? How do we wrap ourselves around and help you do the best? That's a completely different model. In which case, you have to absolutely talk with those folks about what will it take. 
Now, yeah. you know, you're going to get a backlash like the junior doctor strike if you pretend they're just cannon fodder yeah. for a sort of production line, aren't you? Yeah. So, or if yeah, you just well pay done. lip service to yeah. consultation, discussion, yeah. co-production and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was, I was having a look, I had a look at a um, very nice article in Harvard Business Review about what increases performance in any organisation. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they said it's about purpose of work. So they say the main six reasons people work are play, purpose, potential, emotional pressure, economic pressure and inertia. So the first three of those are positive. So what increases performance? First one is play, i.e. you're motivated by the work itself. You work because you enjoy it. It brings something to you. You grow as a person. You're creating. You're using your talent in service to whatever you're doing. I love the idea of playful employees. Playful employees, yeah. Second one was purpose. So where you can see the outcome of the work really reflects your identity, who you want to be in the world. And you work because you value your work's impact and so do the people around you. So that's the second one. Third one is potential, is when the outcome of the work benefits your identity, i.e. doing that work makes you, not only you feel better, but people regard you better Mm. in society around you. So this parallels a lot of what we've just heard from Ian. And then what decreases performance, back to, you know, people who worry about coming into work, whether it's because of their sexual orientation or because they're at the moment a junior doctor... First one is emotional pressure. When you work because some external force threatens your identity, mm. so I've got to do it. Um, peer pressure, shame. You yeah. know, if I don't do it, I'm going to be shamed. The second one is economic pressure. When you have to work because you really need financially. And the third one is inertia, which is um, where the motive is so far removed from mm. your work and your identity, you can't identify why you're working. I don't know I'm doing it because I did it yesterday and the day before. I'm just doing it because I do it. Yeah. And those are negatives. And if you wander into that domain, which I would say we see in our lower-performing organisations, mm. if you wander into that domain, which is actually just not fully engaging working with your staff, yeah. then you're going to get rebellion, yeah. which is what we've seen. And if you absolutely enhance that environment of motivation and morale and engagement and purpose and potential. As Ian said, he said, didn't he, that if you, if you could be yourself, you'll do better work. Yeah. And that absolutely fits in with absolutely. this article in our business room. I thought, what a lesson for us Brilliant. about how to organise. Um, Ian's aspiration to go even higher up that list of 100 employers is fantastic. And I think yeah. you're right alongside him in doing that. And maybe yeah. that Harvard Business Review article has some pointers as to how we can help get there. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Ian, thanks very much. Well done. We're about to hear an interview I did earlier um, today via Skype, actually, with John Feeney. He's currently in Tokyo, but uh, he agreed to speak to me on Skype earlier on about um, the new courses we've validated with the College of Contemporary Health around obesity care and management. So we've got a Master's, PGDIP and PGCERT. And I think they're the first courses of their kind, in in, certainly in the UK and possibly in Europe, um, to tackle this hugely growing challenge around obesity. Becky... I wonder if you know um, which is the fattest region in the United Kingdom. Mm. Uh, yeah, let me have a think. Well, I wouldn't be awfully surprised if it's Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Yorkshire puddings. It might be. It's the Midlands. Is it the Midlands? Yeah, well, 23.1% of the Midlands being obese. 
Tamworth in Staffordshire is the fattest town with a 30.7% obesity rate. Yes, what amazing? do they do? I don't know. So, um, anyway, tackling obesity is becoming something that there's a greater degree of emphasis and focus on. And the courses that the College of Contemporary Health have done are entirely online, so can be done anywhere mm. around the world. Um, and they're looking at giving health professionals the strategies, the skills very much patient-centred about individualised plans around reducing mm. weight and managing weight mm. um, with great deals of success. So let's hear that interview with John now. Mm. John, many congratulations on the successful validation for your obesity care and management programmes. You must be delighted. Well, we are absolutely uh, delighted, Warren, because, uh, you know, it was the end of, a, uh, of about a 12-month or so journey uh, that uh, required uh, intensive interaction with you and your team. Yeah. Uh, and as a result of that interaction, you know, significant, uh, the significant strengthening of some of our courses uh, took place as part of that process. And the end result is we think we have stronger courses. And now with the, LS, the, uh, the much sought after and prized LSBU validation, uh, we think we're ready now to uh, have uh, significant enrollments in the area of obesity, which is frankly a crying yeah. national need and something that's not very well uh, taken care of. No, absolutely. So if, if I'm right, you've, you've successfully validated a postgraduate certificate diploma and a full master's degree in obesity care and management. Um, what can students expect when they, when they enrol on that course, on those courses? Well, when, what they can expect is firstly the uh, the learning approach that we do is uh, is uh, fully online, it's, but it's modulated by a, uh, a tutor, uh, and that tutor as well interacts with uh, LSBU staff, the link tutor, uh, yeah. to ensure that what we do is wholly consistent with uh, your systems, processes, and the requirements of validation. Um, we our courses are uh, of an innovative structure, and they go to the heart of providing. Uh, an intellectual underpinning of what it takes to understand the complexity of the obese condition, mm. but also uh, leads to um, the student having the knowledge to make practical, to be able to practically work with a patient uh, to, you know, to solve or at least mitigate the, uh, the obese or extremely overweight problem that they have. Yeah. Uh, and this course is really, uh, there's no true comparable course to it in the UK. Um, but uh, we think the uh, it's up to date. We update it several times a year, yeah. and uh, and really, uh, when it gets taught three or four times a year, there's no course comparable in terms of its uh, current uh, status uh, in terms of up to date research and so on. Great. So, do, you said it's entirely online, so there's no obligation for students to come onto the university's campus at all. So, presumably, you can take students from anywhere in the world. Yes, it's true, and it's very interesting you say that because um, yesterday we received our first en uh, enrolment from a medical practitioner, a bariatric surgeon who is uh, living uh, in Turkey. Fantastic. And uh, he's uh, he's planning to move to the United Kingdom, and he wants to be a specialist um, in obesity care and management, and he wants to get started on the uh, on the MSc, 
and, uh, and and come here. It's a growing problem, isn't it? It's not something that's that's improving um, as a, it's as an epidemic. I was reading, I think, the other day that the UK is uh, ranks something like 28th in the list of the fattest countries globally, which you know isn't something to be proud of, is it? Uh, it isn't, and um, and I would be surprised if it wasn't a bit further up the uh, the ladder than that. Um, but you know, uh, it is what it is. The key, the key crying need is, is that there isn't any training. And I think I could say uh, quite uh, candidly that essentially every application we receive um, online from a prospective student, before we call them, we've asked them, why are you interested in you know, pursuing this course? Yeah. And uh, nine out of 10 answers is, uh, is essentially the same. We are increasingly facing um, obese patients uh, in the clinic, you know, the hospital or whatever, um, and, and we just don't know how to deal with them. No. And, uh, and, and, you know, the cost of this is just unbelievable because we just introduced the first module of part of the PG DIP. We ran it as a pilot um, from September until the end of the year. It's called Obesity and Reproductive Health. Yeah. It is the first module of its kind uh, addressing that subject at university level in the country. And I might add, frankly, almost anywhere that we haven't found a, a similar one anywhere else. I was um, aware that just, I think last week, the NHS England, um, in the absence of, of, of central governmental action on the sugar tax, NHS, yeah. Eng NHS England has decided to impose or bring in its own sugar tax in that it's going to charge more in uh, hospital canteens and on NHS premises for products that contain sugar. Do you think that's the right kind of approach? Well, I, I think it's a very contentious area, but we do know that um, the most recent evidence is in um, in Mexico, uh, where the imposition of a 20% tax mm. uh, on soft drinks led to an 11% decline uh, in overall consumption. John, uh, graduates from from the new courses, um, what what extra skills and competences should they have by the time they get through the courses uh, and, and graduate? They will know um, how to. Uh, well, firstly, they'll have a, a very deep understanding. Certainly, the PG Cert, which is our the, the sort of cornerstone of the master's degree, it's compulsory, yeah. uh, includes the three modules: causes and consequences, behavioural aspects, and uh, solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, they will be the best trained person in that clinic um, in dealing with an obese patient because so many of the uh, uh, the obesity in many ways uh, is a huge problem in and of itself. But what's particularly damaging are the comorbidities such as uh, high blood pressure, uh, heart, heart disease, uh, cancer, and a huge number of people whose joints give out under the weight yeah. uh, of their obese condition. So uh, this, our graduates will be able to work with the other healthcare professionals to tailor whether it's an eating program, uh, dealing with uh, an, is it an eating disorder, and then work with a behavioral psychologist, uh, is it an exercise issue, or is it a combination of all those? And our uh, students, our graduates, are uniquely qualified to work with the other members of the team to make sure that that. Uh, that problem is uh, effectively addressed. John, anyone listening to this who's who's interested maybe in finding out more about the course or the courses, where can, where can they go for information? Well, we have a student services group, and if they go to our website, 
www.contemporaryhealthoneword.co.uk um, that they can find out the information. But as of uh, now that we have validation, I'm also pleased to say that if they go to lsbu.ac.uk and want to enroll in the uh, master's program or one of the, uh, the postgraduate certificate or diploma, or just study a single module in CPD, uh, they're all on, on the LSBU website. So there are two ways of, uh, of uh, getting access to the information that's required. Brilliant. John, thanks for your time. Enjoy the rest of your time in Tokyo, and um, we'll catch up when you get back to the UK. Well, thank you, uh, Warren, and, and thanks again to you and your team and, and giving me this special opportunity to talk to you, you and your listeners uh, on this podcast about uh, our mutually important work together. That's fantastic. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. Thanks, Warren. Take care. Bye now. Bye. Well, Warren, I think Jamie Oliver's going to be pretty pleased to hear about that. <laughs> he is, oh, yeah. yeah, He's been lobbying for ages around <laughs> both the, the sugar tax and how we tackle obesity in this country. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it, at a time yeah. when we've got increased inequalities, where we've got people, food banks, and at the same time we've got obesity. So yeah. we've yeah. got some really endemic problems in our society. It's absolutely fabulous to hear that there's a course people can learn how to work well with people in a positive way who are really oh, struggling great. with their own yeah. weight, huh? Absolutely. And the fact that the graduates are going to have this approach, which is much more individualised than perhaps yeah. there's been in the past. I mean, you know, one size does not fit all, does it, when it comes to tackling the challenge of obesity? There's lots of different approaches and motivations well, as are. to why people have I mean, problem. I was just uh, I was having a quick look at... Um, mm. Jamie's letter to the Prime Minister. Yes. And he's citing, you know, KPMG's work, there's 44 things you can do to tackle yeah. obesity, you know, right upstream to work with the food industry, who are shocking. I, mm. I've spent some time volunteering in Tanzania a few months ago. Yeah. And you just don't taste sweet things no. <laughs> ever. No. So we're sweet rich, for a start. Yeah. So you've got what you might do with the food industry. You've got all the policy work, you know, with our own sugar yeah. tax in, in the health system. How fascinating Absolutely. is that? Quite right to you. Absolutely. You have to model these behaviours. You, yeah. you have to walk the talk. You can't sit there as a health professional and tell people how to behave differently. No, absolutely. And it boils down to things too, like there's a, the, in commerce, the supermarkets could be doing a lot more too, couldn't they? I mean, absolutely. When you, when you look at all of those things at the end of the aisles, the trans special offer, you know, oh, yeah. buy two, get one free, how many of those are for high-fat, high-sugar items as opposed to, to fruit and veg and, and, and healthy options? And it's so cultural. So I travel a lot. And I don't think there's anywhere in the world apart from America where you find, um, actually, funnily enough, sometimes in Japan, but still not the same, where you find mm. all that sweet stuff at child height, yeah. right yeah. before the hour. All the range of biscuits. You go to a supermarket in Amsterdam, you do, the shelves, they don't dedicate the yeah. amount of shelving space to sugar. So you're absolutely right, we could do, yeah. do more of that. Yeah. But the other thing I found was interesting, I did some research a while ago on um, social networks. Mm. I, I can't find it, I'll just have a quick look. Um, but one of the things that we came across, we were looking at the impact of social networks mm. and looking at pe looking, working with some people who've got these types of um, um, addictions, yeah. uh, that quite often you find that, that if you can link them into social networks, those folks do improve their health. So yeah. quite often, you know, helping people just manage the sugar content of their food or what they eat, quite often people lie about their mm. own yeah. diet anyway even if you make them list it down but actually what folk didn't have was any you know once you started connecting them online to other people in all sorts of ways mm. and giving them some sense of a community 
absolutely improved their yeah, their food intake. So you know this, how connected are we as people? How isolated yeah. we are as people? What's it take to be a human being, a good sister? Mm. And so it's lovely to see a course that gets right underneath those courses, not yeah. only in the upstream stuff about what the food industry peddles, but also the yeah. policy context. And then what is it that makes people tick? And how do you help folk who you know nobody wants to be so yeah. fat that they have to take up two seats in an aeroplane or you know or be tick you know tatted out on the bus? People don't want that. They're not horrible yeah. people. And there's been a, a, a recent trend in London, I don't know elsewhere, about fat shaming. Have you heard about this? Where people have been given letters on the tube by nice, people huh? to say That's how ugly they are and you know, I mean it's Well terrible. we can do that around our immigrant population. We mm. are really, really intolerant aren't we mm. uh, about getting into other people's shoes I'm guessing that's because it's so threatening to our own identity if we had to step into other people's shoes mm. and try and understand their perspectives and what motivates them or why they are where they are we'd have to tackle some stuff in ourselves so I think that I always find that very aggressive model yeah. of other is usually about people's personal anxieties Absolutely. actually and yeah. um, so well, great news on that validation, and well done to John, Val, and everybody at the College of Contemporary Health. So we've had a couple of, I think, linked and interesting furors in the in the press this week around health service, and one yeah. was about um, the nice guidance on on A and E staffing, and you know, what is yeah. safe. For patients and those leaked guidelines um, from the, the in the news this week. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, health service journal Sean Linton isn't he fabulous investigator? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm finally uncovering what they thought was safe and uh, and this real tension between centralism and decentralization. So, should the Department of Health tell you what a safe staffing level is? Should CQC inspect for it, or should be you be really grown up organizations and know how to staff your own yeah. unit? what attention that is around policy and around professionalism. And it ties into, doesn't it, to, to some of the issues around workforce planning yeah. and, and all of the changes that we're seeing at the moment around the student bursary. And I know we discussed some of that in last month's we podcast did. and our, our recent debate about that on the student bursaries. Yeah. Because the government is claiming that um, actually commissioning nurse training and restricting the numbers of bursaries available is part of the problem you know in terms of nurse staffing levels and well i I mean my experience is that um it's always great if you can find a simple solution and take one action that suits politicians very well and it often suits us as the public very well but sadly it's much much more complex than that Mm. but one thing we know warren is that highly motivated staff produce fantastic care for patients i mean you have to richard branson is our guru on this isn't he around the world but so we firstly we know that and the second thing we know is that the relationship between qualified professional nurses and patients the direct ratio improves outcomes and the third thing we know is that overall capacity improves outcomes so you know, we we know what those are so what are that what do you then do about it mm. and there's two elements one is what do you do about it as a manager and what do you do about it as a politician yeah, yeah. and so you know you could say it, the reason that we have to put nurse bursaries in is because we've we haven't got enough numbers well okay or you fund it differently mm. or uh, 
do we have to fund that out of people's personal pockets? Is that fair given length of training types of um, the ability to earn money after us? It's much, much more complex than that. What's the skill mix going to be? But mm. what seven-day working look like? You've got yeah. a much broader conversation here about workforce. Yeah. But there is evidence about the relationship between workforce and outcomes. Yeah. And I, for me, I think that's where we have to start, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in the news items that you've picked out, from this week's, I mean, uh, The Guardian has done this great feature. It's been a great time Amazing. to focus on the podcast, isn't it? Because this last week, it's been Guardian's NHS week. So there's been some fantastic articles, one of which is around the A&E um, staffing levels, yeah. nursing staff levels. And it's quite shocking, actually. Some, some A&E units having less than half the number of uh, qualified nurses than are judged necessary for safe care. So I had a really nice chat with Dame Eileen Sills yesterday because actually St Thomas's and Guy's are pretty well staffed. Yeah, yeah. So how has she managed to get that working when other organisations have struggled? And they are fabulous at using good metrics. Yeah. So they've got a you know a real touchstone here, which is that, and, they, and I think Warren, this is a huge dose of common sense, mm. and a huge uh, a huge respect to Eileen and the team around professionalism. So what they say is that uh, in a bed in a hospital, if a patient needs feeding, they probably need pretty much one to one care. Mm. So that gives you some indication, and she has others. Absolutely, they have other indicators, but that's a really good touchstone for how many nurses have we got on duty, how many patients need feeding. Now, it's not as simple as that, but that's one of the ways she reports to the board about whether they're safe. Now, she takes their metrics. They have an amazing app that they use to get alerts all the time about the level of staffing because they absolutely have made the case and they can go to the board and say, you can be assured that we have enough nurses on duty to care for the complexity of patients. And if they haven't, their nurses can flag, we think our ward's not safe today. And it also seems much more, to me anyway, it seems much more pragmatic, sensible and sensitive than just, for example, a ratio. Exactly. It's it's sensitive to the complexities of the patients on that ward at that time. And actually, Suzanne Hinchcliffe, who was the Director of Nursing, is now the Assistant uh, Deputy Chief Executive at Leeds Teaching Hospital Trust, is exactly the same with her board. Mm. She helped Leeds get to a level of staffing that's safe, using exactly the same model. So here we go. We have some really great practice here in organisations and hospitals, and we could absolutely do the same in communities about what safe looks like. I mean, there's been a bit of a theme around professional issues, hasn't there? There in the has, news this yeah. Month. This article from, um, Fiona. from Fiona, the chief nurse in Scotland, Fiona McQueen. What do you think of that? What do you make of well, that? Well, how... I mean, good for her. I've got a lot of respect for Fiona, actually. I think yeah. she, she really does, as uh, some people say, speak truth to power. She says yeah. it as it is. Yeah. And it's well, been quite a controversial piece, though. Do you very want to controversial what it is she piece. So, so what Fiona was saying was that uh, she's sort of had a real wish for professionalism mm. in nursing and healthcare, I mean, across the whole health service. And uh, she talks about the complexity of the changes going on for professionals, whether it's contracts, whether it's validation, whether it's workforce policies, very complex environment at the moment, but a lot of change in, for and with professionals. But she talks about the context in which that takes place. She talks about, are we ready as professionals to be professionals? You know, And she just talks about some things that she 
isn't prepared to tolerate and doesn't think other people could tolerate. Yeah. And um, you know, it, the, t- the article is titled No More Mrs. Pishy Pants, which <laughs> says that, you know, an, a, a nurse saying to an old lady, if you wet the bed, I'm going to call you Pishy Pants. Now, you know, Warren, I, you know, we know this stuff happens. Yeah. And so there was a fraud about it, which is how dare she and she shouldn't. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're exposing some so-called professional's behaviour. And I think what she said was, it's unacceptable. Mm. And she also says in that article about all the great stuff she sees and how fantastic that is. And, you know, we saw The Guardian celebrating this week all the great stories of births, of GPs, of sexual health doctors and nurses. I mean, we see an amazing celebration of things that are right. But what happened with this article was that um, she was asked to apologise and I think we have an undercurrent here. I think she's touched on something. So yeah. when you go to high-performing health systems around the world, what you find is a very a, a considerable reliance on trust, a considerable reliance on professionalism yeah. and innovation, and, and professionals really accountable and really scrutinise each other's practice based on fantastic data. Yeah. They have data scientists who are facing clinical practice so that you can, as a professional, yeah. make great decisions with patients based on real evidence, what's yeah. really going on around here. Now, I think we're data light in mm-hmm. clinical decision-making. And I think that uh, general management, Thatcherism, um, really, uh, on the basis that we had, in some ways, exploited professionalism in this mm-hmm. country, means that... Um, we have a phenomenal reliance on performance management and controls, a real yeah. sense that professionals are, can't be trusted to make great decisions. No. Because actually, in some instances, we weren't. And there, in some ways, Fiona describes exactly the sort of situation, mm-hmm. which means that politicians and managers will say, actually, do you know, we can't trust you because you can't do a good job. Yeah. So the context is that we've got a real schizophrenia here, which is that we have to develop professionalism, which is fully accountable in order to generate innovation. And that itself will reduce the reliance on regulation and controls. And you need to actively manage that so that we are reducing the Mm. weight of bureaucracy because it takes so much time. It takes so much effort. And all it does is create a level of safety net. It doesn't help us out of the mess. However, back to our very, very first conversation, which is that what's the culture in which... Mm. nurses and doctors struggled to care fantastically mm. for service using carers. People didn't come in to denigrate citizens. No. So back to our first conversation, what's the environment we're creating, which isn't about threat, which isn't about lacking value, which isn't about saying you're just doing a job, mm. that is about purpose and morality. And mm. you know, back to what is it that makes organisations thrive? Yeah. And if you go to high-performing health systems, they work with their frontline staff on just those issues. How do we thrive yeah. together? How do we support that? Uh, you go to you go to Joster Blocks, amazing output in Birdsong, phenomenal self-directed yeah. nursing teams, great data, really good back office staff, so people don't have to worry about that. Manage the regulation. So, I think when I've asked audiences in this country. What's the balance? How much time do we spend on performance management, regulation and controls versus how much do we spend on innovation? Most or, most organisations say we spend 80% of our time on performance yeah. management controls. The really great organisations say actually they spend, the high performing health systems, 
say they spend 20% of their time on that yeah. and they put 20% of their resources on that that's where we've got to get to Warren yeah. so I think Fiona raises something really important here that we shouldn't be afraid of discussing which is what does new professional look like yeah. now one of the things that caught my eye because I quite like some of these sillier stories as yeah. well yeah go on <laughs> <laughs> um, binge drinking injuries are on the rise among students it's not something I've noticed as a particular issue here but it appears I mean some of these figures Becky are astonishing there were oh, yeah. at least 900 194 incidents on 54 university campuses uh, of binge drinking students suffering injuries uh, between 2010 and 2015. And um, last year, 233, the largest number ever. Mm. Um, And some universities have very high levels. I'm surprised, actually. Leeds University had 73 Mm. injuries from binge drinking students last year and 123 in 2014. Mm. And Kingston in London had 10. Um, mm. I mean, this seems a real problem, doesn't it? It is a real problem, actually. It's partly, it's partly cultural. So um, it's partly how our young people are approaching alcohol. Um, it's partly uh, the change of the licensing laws, in my yeah. view. So um, uh, Leeds is uh, my um, you know, is my hometown. And um, it's been really interesting to see as the licensing laws were liberated in a current policies view, it meant the rise of corner shops that had never existed before. It meant that you could have big companies coming in in Freshers' Week and running, you know, buckets of vodka for under a pound and selling them. So uh, the Students' Union in Leeds University is absolutely fabulous, actually. They've tried Mm. a number of things. They've tried um, giving people water for free. They've tried Mm. thinking... They've been thinking about, do we send undercover students in to go and whistleblow? The police say it's really difficult to prosecute Mm. selling drunk to drunks, drink to drunks, which is a big issue. Um, We know we have to staff the A&E differently in A&E for those weeks. It's Mm. absolutely shocking. Gosh. Uh, we've been trying to do some work on um, reduce on, on providing other options. So one of the things that came out of a big piece of work on co-producing the drug and alcohol strategy in the city mm. was around dry bar. So I'm a co-director of a dry bar. We're trying to get it off the ground yeah, with students, actually. Um, uh, because we have our faith communities that don't drink. Yeah. We have people that don't drink for lifestyle choices and we're trying to encourage students not to drink. Mm. But there isn't really a choice. If you want to go out in the evening not drinking isn't an easy option actually no. it's not you know it's seen as a bit weird so we've got to do something about how our well, attitude to that yeah. and then in this week's um guardian just reinforcing this issue around mental health stigma and how language yeah. can reinforce some stereotypes um george osborne found himself at the center of a of a row actually around uh, some <laughs> <laughs> around the, the, some flippant remarks he made um about fellow mp uh, john mcdonald and Yanis Varoufakis uh, when he said they'd lost their marbles and it's just a really inappropriate use of of language and unfortunate um, language he's he's not actually apologised as far as I can tell Um, and isn't it a shame Warren because what we're seeing I mean I think there's anecdotal evidence isn't there around the increase in anxiety and people's mental health problems as our inequalities Mm. increase so as people struggle with their own personal health and wealth we're seeing an increase in all sorts of mental health disorders and what you want people to do is to be able to talk about that yeah it's you know it's so critical to get that early on isn't it and not to feel they're being victim blamed and have 
fingers pointed at them and names shouted at them. I mean, Second what's class interesting... citizens is becoming the new thing, isn't it? It's I mean, terrible. what's interestingly here, um, in an open letter to the Chancellor, Labour's Shadow Minister for Mental Health, Luciana Berger, uh, expressed deep disappointment, saying, mental health affects one in four of us at any time. Yeah. People with mental health problems fa- already face stigma, prejudice and discrimination. She wrote, flippant remarks such as those the Chancellor chose to use today serve to reinforce gaps in understanding. And John Burkow, who is the common speaker, said he thought it was intended in a jocular spirit. You see, that's, um, I mean, this is, goes back to the earlier conversation we had yeah. about Stonewall, doesn't it? And about, you know, this is quite a move, societally, it's quite a move, isn't it? Yeah. We have a number of deeply held prejudices Absolutely. that we've all grown up with over time, and whether that's about the worth of immigrants, mm. um, economic or... They used cockroaches, I think, didn't he? Yeah. David there's, Cameron. There's a, nu- there's a number of mm. sets of languages that are, are creating... And people say that's about whether you're PC or not. But actually, language is all we have to change the yeah. world. You know, relationships and language... And uh, that's what we have to use. So if we can't yeah. change the language, we'll never change the behaviour, in my view. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, I guess this month, we can't close this oh. month's podcast without at least mentioning the sad news yeah. that we heard earlier this month of uh, David oh. Bowie's sad death. Um, and but, but interestingly, there's an article on the BBC website um, where a doctor, Dr Mark Torbert, who is a palliative care consultant at Valendra NHS Trust in Cardiff, said that uh, he'd written a letter to David Bowie to thank him for helping to, him to talk to people about death mm-hmm. and about palliative care. Um, um, and uh, this is quite a powerful thing, I think. You know, it's, it, David Bowie's own illness and then the subsequent death has helped this doctor to explore those issues with patients because it's provided a focus that's not really about the patient specifically, mm. but a, a, an alternative way for, to address some of those issues. That's really interesting. Well, I guess um, David Bowie would be so delighted that he'd help somebody yeah. think differently because that's always what he was doing, wasn't he? He was, it was pushing people yeah, to... Yeah. To think and behave differently. So, yeah, the That's world really is a good. quieter place without David Bowie. Re- it really God. is. And, uh, yeah, we all need a level of challenge, and he certainly did do that with us, didn't he? He did, didn't he? <laughs> At every level. Yeah, great. Well, Becky, it's been great co-hosting with you. Thanks so much. Some great Thank ideas. You. Thanks for listening, folks. If you've got any ideas for a future podcast, or if you'd, li- in fact, like to even record your own interview or article to be broadcast in the February um, edition, um, the podcast gets broadcast usually the last Friday of the month. Um, the email to send your ideas to or comments to is hscpodcast at lsbu.ac.uk. So from me, Warren Turner... And me, Becky Malby. Until next time, bye-bye. Goodbye.